0: Ave Maria Purissima, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The American Museum of Natural History in New York City is justly famous for being one of the premier science museums in the world. And there's a striking sight as you approach the Hall of Human Biology and Evolution. As you walk down the corridor toward the display, you're faced with a pitch black facade. In the middle, perfectly centered in that black wall, a diorama. You have a dark, it's got dark uh, wooden recessed edges. It's pits black inside, except for three brightly illuminated items. And in this field of blackness, these three items just sort of leap out. There's a large dead branch. It's been stripped of barks and twigs, it's leaving only the bare wood. On that branch, there's a skeleton of a female gorilla. She's perched there. She's apparently looking down and placing something in the upstretched hand of another skeleton, the skeleton of a human female. Now, immediately above this display, there's a beautiful surface of polished black granite, and carved into that granite in huge white letters are the words Human Biology and Evolution. See, this pitch black wall Centered within a display, about five foot by eight foot, contains a bright white skeleton of a female gorilla, crouched in a dead branch, she's about four feet off the ground. and This mother gorilla is placing something in the upstretched palm of a bright white skeleton of a human female. And above this display, a beautiful surface of polished black granite has the words, human biology and evolution, carved into it, huge white letters. All that, uh, that imagery is a clear sign that we're dealing with theology here, not science. That image is actually an icon. We've just walked into the temple of Darwin and we've looked at the first icon. And to understand the profound, and I do mean profound significance of that display, we should pause for a minute to talk briefly about icons. Now, what's an icon? A holy icon is a sacred image. It's a visual sermon. It's a sermon without words. It's the Word of God in a visible form. It's a work of art that's meant to intuitively convey a theological message. The imagery of a holy icon is meant to convey a message about God. The whole point of a holy icon is to reveal something about inexpressible divine truths by using visible, symbolic imagery. But how can we dare to express divine truths, or attempt to dare to express divine truths in our work, precisely because we believe in Incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God became man. God became visible. Now because a holy icon portrays some person like Christ our Lord, or the Blessed Virgin, or some event, like the Resurrection. And because, as we know in the beginning, God made man in his image and likeness, by using fixed symbols and mystical colors, an icon is meant to symbolically express the image of God as it's found in that particular man who's being portrayed. The idea is, if you view this icon regularly, these forms, those particular spiritual truths which are being expressed in that image, will fill the soul soul of the viewer, okay? So just as if we listen to a symphony over and over again, the musical themes will fill our souls. So also by viewing an icon over and over again, the theological truths will fill our souls. So Holy Icon is a spiritual work of art. It's a sermon written without words, and it's meant to convey a theological message. And the more we view it, the more those spiritual themes are meant to soak into our souls. They become part of the very fiber of our being. Now, the enemy certainly understands this principle and his unholy icons have a purpose behind them also. Unholy icons are also sermons without words. What are the sort of things his unholy icons portray? Well, they don't portray truth, but lies. So in that light, let's turn back to the display in the American Museum of Natural History. Remember, we've got this pitch-black wall. Smack-dab in the center of that is a display containing this bright white skeleton of a female gorilla, crouched on a dead branch. is about four foot off the ground. This mother gorilla is placing something into the upstretched palm of the bright white skeleton of a human female. And above this, there's this beautiful surface of black polished granite with the words, Human Biology and Evolution, carved into it in huge white letters. So what's the meaning here? What, essentially speaking, is the meaning of this display? Instead of light, we have darkness. Instead of God the Father, we have the mother gorilla. Instead of the tree of life, we have a dead branch. Instead of the first man receiving the gift of light from God, we have the first woman receiving the gift of life from a gorilla. Instead of the state of grace, we have the state of nature. Instead of a living God and a living man, we've got dead skeletons. And over it all, carved on stone tablets, are the words. Human evolution. Carved in stone. It's carved in stone. Human evolution, it's the light and the darkness, it's carved in stone. Now does anybody here seriously think this is accidental? It's an accident that this is a deliberate blasphemous mockery of the book of Genesis. When Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, he was making an iconographic description or depiction, rather, of scriptural truths, including that beautiful rendition of the creation of man with the outstretched hand of Adam receiving the gift of life from God. We're all familiar with that image. But here, in one of the premier science museums in the world, in the very entrance, to the Hall of Human Evolution. What are we greeted with? With an icon that symbolically but explicitly mocks sacred scripture and mocks Michelangelo's beautiful depiction of the creation of man. Why do you suppose they're mocking the word of God, one of the greatest science museums in the world? Now, if you can't give a clear answer to that question, you simply don't understand the key significance that evolution plays in this terrible cultural war in which we're all engaged. It's about time our side woke up and started smelling the sulfur. A display like that, that symbolically but explicitly mocks sacred scripture, and one of the greatest science museums in the world demonstrates clearly that what we're dealing with here is not science at all. We're dealing with a false religion masquerading in science. And they know it. And all too often, we don't. We're at war. We're not called the church Militant for nothing. The very fact, the very existence of a display like that should be a sign to us, a sign that we're not dealing with science at all. We're dealing with the religious issues. We're not created with a scientific display, we're created with a religious icon, an icon from hell. And the enemy is fully aware of that. When there's an overthrow of a regime, the old statues get toppled. You should think about that. When there's an ro- overthrow of a regime, the old statues get toppled the new statues go up. And in this great cultural war, it isn't just the Ten Commandments that have been replaced. Why do they attack creation? The famous Oxford evolutionist and best-selling author Richard Dawkins puts it succinctly, quote, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, close quote. That's a famous scientist explaining the appeal of evolution. Does that sound like science? does that sound like religion? Basically, evolution functions as a materialist myth to creation without God. Professor William B. Provine, formerly of Cornell, expands this point. The great majority of modern evolutionary biologists are atheists, or something very close to that. Yet they publicly deny there is any conflict between science and religion. Rather than simple intellectual dishonesty, this position is pragmatic. Many scientists believe that funding for science might suffer if the atheistic implications of modern science were widely understood. Of course, it is still possible to believe in both modern evolutionary biology and a purposive force, even the Judeo-Christian God. One can suppose that God started the whole universe or works through the laws of nature both. There is no contradiction between this or similar views of God and natural selection. But this view of God is also worthless. Such a God has nothing to do with human morals, answers no prayers, gives no life everlasting, in fact, does nothing whatsoever that is detectable. In other words, religion is compatible with modern evolutionary biology if the religion is effectively indistinguishable from atheism. Close quotes. Religion is compatible with modern evolutionary biology if the religion is effectively indistinguishable from atheism and the prominent atheistic scientists, the public denied there is any conflict between science and religion, have taken a pragmatic position, because their funding might suffer if the implications were understood. Now this pragmatic concealing of the true implications of evolutionary theory has been part of the program from the very beginning. Karl Marx was so enamored of Darwin's work that he wanted to dedicate parts of Das Kapital to Darwin. Darwin wrote to Marx to refuse the honor because, among other things, he did not believe that direct attacks on religion advanced the cause of free thought. What did Darwin just say to Marx? He wanted to advance the cause of free thought, which is to say he wanted to advance an agnostic or atheistic manner of thinking which attacks Christianity but he thought the direct attacks weren't the best way to do so. Evolution is not science. It's a false religious worldview camouflaged under the guise of science, and it's been that way from the beginning. And the enemy is getting bolder. In some cases, the gloves are coming off. And In an article entitled The Meaning of Evolution, G. Richard Bozarth writes, Evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Take away the meaning of his death. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution needs, then Christianity is nothing. Close quote. Evolution is not science the false religious world It's camouflaged as science. So, let's define our terms. What's evolution? In an article in science, now science is one of the two most highly respected scientific uh, journals in the world, other being the journal Nature. Dr. W. H. Murdy, a biology from Emory University, boils down the whole evolutionary hypothesis into a point that even the smallest child can understand. And I quote, before life, our ancestry extends back through billions of years of molecular change to the nuclei of former stars. Here the elements necessary for life were built up from hydrogen, the simplest and most abundant element in the universe," close quote. So our ancestry extends back through billions of years of molecular change to hydrogen. So what's Dr. Murdy saying? Well, he's given us the recipe for a Harvard professor. You take immense amount of hydrogen, uh, a giant cloud of hydrogen, he had an immense amount of time, poof, You have Harvard professors. That's evolution. Jared King summarized the same idea in a slightly more elegant way. Evolution is a molecules to man, natural transformation in which new, higher genetic information is gained, which was not possessed by one's ancestors. Is a, is evolution is a molecules to man, natural transformation which new higher genetic information is gained which was not possessed by one's ancestors. Details may differ, but the idea of change to something vastly different, amphibians to reptiles, reptiles to birds, etc., is a common edu- understanding of evolution. So evolution is a molecules to man, natural transformation which new higher genetic information is gained which was not possessed by one's ancestors. And just how much information are we talking here? The genetic information contained in the human genome of just one cell, the amount of information contained in one of your cells, the DNA in one of your cells, would fill a library of some 4,000 volumes, each of which had 500 pages with 300 words per page. And since an adult has around 10 to the 14 cells, that's one with 14 zeros behind it, uh, that means that if all the DNA in your body was written down in books, it would completely fill the Grand Canyon. 78 times. Now, just where do you suppose all that information came from? In order to believe this molecules demand transformation, produce this incredible lot of information randomly requires two things a belief in miracles and an act of faith. What are those characteristics of science, or of religion? Let's go back, back into the Hall of Human Biology and Evolution in the American Museum of Natural History. And now that we've taken a look at the unholy icon in the festival, we'll go directly to the Temple of Darwin and take a look around. As we go to left, we pass by the Black Wall. We see a sign that reads in part, quote, humans are an integral part of nature, we belong to the great branching system of living things, which has arisen from an ancestor that lived more than 3.5 billion years ago, close quote. Unquote. There's that molecules to man routine. The current claim was that our ancestor was a piece of RNA, a molecule of ribonucleic acid. Another sign quote. Sometime before, five million years ago, the human lineage emerged in Africa from the more generalized hominide ancestry. However, no fossils have been fo- yet found that document this event. Close quote. Now think about what they're saying here. Sometime before five million years ago, the human lineage emerged in Africa from more generalized hominid ancestry. However, no fossils have been yet found that document this event. So that's a religious claim. The evolutionary magisterium has stated this happened, even though, as they point out, they have no evidence. To believe this requires an act of faith, the natural, not the supernatural, but an act of faith nonetheless. It also requires that the obvious interpretation of Genesis be placed immediately in doubt. Now we come to the exhibits. They've all got little disclaimers with the line, certain details are entirely conjectural. Now that is an understatement. Certain details are entirely conjectural. Starting with an exhibit entitled, The Earliest Human Relatives, We See Two Two Austro- Australopithecines uh, up for strolls. So you have this male and female, they're black, they're covered with hair except for their facial features, looking like they're somewhere between apes and men. We go on to another exhibit. It's got uh, dark, naked, hairy eight men and women wandering around the savannah with little eight boys wrestling around. Go to another exhibit with partially hairy people, they're naked, stupid looking, and black, until we reach the crown exhibit, which has a great big blonde hair, Blonde bearded man clothed in fur furs with two, come two of these Nordic babes that are clothed in, in slightly revealing furs. More unholy icons. The racism is so blatant. Dark, naked, stupid looking, all the way up till we reach the pinnacle of evolution, the pride of the of his two wives. The racism is an impossible mistake, and just for good measure, there's a little swipe. That's the monogamy of Adam and Eve there. What's the message here? It's racism, it's unmistakable racism, an undeniable denial of genesis, and it's not accidental. Racism has been part and parcel of evolution for quite some time. I quote At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state than even a Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon, instead as now between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. Close quote. So this author actually looks forward to the time when the so-called intermediaries between the white man and the baboon are exterminated. And who are these intermediaries between the white man and the baboon? Gorillas, Australians, and, and blacks. It's pretty vile stuff. That was taken, by the way, from The Descent of Man. It was written by a guy named Charles Darwin. Then, of course, there's Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. Galton was captivated by Darwin's theories. Galton actually coined a word for describing the direct application of his cousin theories of you know, evolution to human sociological problems, and that word is eugenics. As Galton wrote, quote, if talented men were mated with talented women, we might produce a highly bred human race, close quote. And he believed we needed, quote, to check the birth rate of the unfit instead of allowing them to come into being, close quote. On his part, Dalton thought that Galton's ideas were, quote, admirable, close quote. Now, Galton attracted a great following in suit, including luminaries like the, the German scientist Ernst Haeckel, and through Haeckel, uh, even more famous Austrian, certain Mr. Hitler, as well as other notables like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. Now, H.G. Wells is one of the lovers of yet another Galton uh, follower, the editor of the Birth Control Review a magazine whose motto was, quote, more children for the fit, less for the unfit, close quote. Now a typical quote from that editor reads, quote, those least fit to carry on the race are increasing most rapidly. Funds that should be used to raise the standard of our civilization are diverted to maintenance of those who should have never been born, close quote. Now who did she consider least fit to carry on the race? I'll quote from her. Hebrews? Hebrews? Slavs, Catholics, and Negroes." Close quote. was the editor of the Birth Control Review? A woman who is also a member of both the American Eugenics Society and the English Eugenics Society, who was an early supporter of the Nazi eugenics program, went on to greater fame and fortune as the founders of Planned Parenthood. It's Margaret Sanger.
1: Does anyone think those racist
0: displays in the museum are an accident? Is this science? Or the unholy icons of some strange religion? And finally, before we leave the museum, consider this note published in the Birth Control Review, July 1931, quote. The Eugenics Research Association held its annual meeting on June 6th at the American Museum of Natural History, New York, close quote. The Eugenics Research Association held its annual meeting at the American Museum of Natural History. Those racist displays in the museum are no accident at all. They're not science. They're unholy icons. A strange and horrible religion. From the very beginning, there's been another agenda. Evolution is not science. We're dealing with a false religious worldview, masquerading science, and they know it. All too often we don't. In his biography, Matthew Chapman, now he's the great great grandson of Charles Darwin, states, quote, Darwin's theory of evolution demolished the biblical story of creation. If the very first chapter of the good book was nonsensical and true, why would the rest be credible or useful? Close quote. If the very first chapter of the good book was nonsensical and true, why would the rest be more credible and useful? Amen and preach it, brother. That's exactly the point. Another modern free thinker has uh, perceptibly stated, quote, those liberal and neo-orthodox Christians who regard the creation stories as myths or allegories are undermining the rest of scripture. For if there was no Adam, there was no fall. If there was no fall, there was no hell. If there was no hell, there's no need of Jesus second Adam incarnate Savior crucified and risen. As a result, the whole biblical system of salvation collapses. Evolution thus becomes the most potent weapon for destroying the Christian faith." Close quotes. That's an enemy. And he's right. They know what they're doing. See, if evolution be true, then Scripture is not trustworthy. If evolution be true,
1: then tradition is not
0: trustworthy. If evolution be true, then there are no immutable natures, and so the natural law has no meaning. And so if evolution be true, then we're left with nothing but our own opinions, which means that if evolution be true, it's just our slogans against theirs. And so if evolution be true, and we're descended from animals, then why shouldn't we act like them? Why shouldn't we do what we feel like? Why shouldn't we? Let's close. We open by considering an icon from the culture of death, and mockery of one of the paintings on the ceiling of Sistine Chapel. Let's close by meditating on another icon, that incredible scene painted by Michelangelo by the in the same chapel. It's the scene of the last judgment. So we began with the beginning, Let's close with the end. And that beautiful icon just unbelievable. There's a beautiful blue sky that seems almost real. And in the center, our Lord is sitting in judgment. There's Our Lady around in the apostles. There's some sort of swirl of motion around, you know. Down below, the angels are pulling the dead up out of the graves. And the blessed are being taken up by the angels into heaven. And the cursed are being dragged down by the demons down into hell this magnificent icon of the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the last day, judgment day, the end of the world. So what about us? There will be dust in the tombs. What will become of us? If somehow we could stand back and watch, what will we see? Will judgment day be anything like that image? when that trumpet blows, will we all be snatched up out of that dusty grave and brought by the angels to the valley of Jehoshaphat all in the twinkling of an eye? Is that what's going to happen? Or perhaps when we see the angels taking the dust from each grave and mixing it and arranging it so it ever so slowly forms an organic soup, Then self-replicating molecules of RNA. Then DNA. Then over the aeons, a primitive cell, a segmented worm. A fish. A fish that grows legs. A fish that takes its scales off and becomes an amphibian. Then puts its scales back on and becomes a reptile. Then takes its scales back off and becomes a mammal. Changing from a little rat-like mammal, solely, into a primate. Then an ape then eight man, and fine. we appear. Will we see something like some horrible claymation movie with this accompanying soundtrack of weird squeaks, green drones, and crunts, all of which would take place over a fairly long day? The longest day? A 3.5 billion year long day? Because remember that even though people used to think that a day in the Bible meant, well, a day, Modern scripture scholarship assures us that that's only pre scientific supposition. So, is our Lord going to be hovering there in judgment for 3.5 billion years with all the angels and the saints while well, all this goes on? Well, which is it? If someone can believe that God is going to yank us all out of the ground all of a sudden at the end of time, we're about to profess that. Then why, in the name of all that's good and holy, can they not believe he did the same thing with our father, Adam, in the beginning of time? Besides, we already know what happened with Adam. In 1859, Darwin published The Origin of Species and followed that some years later with The Descent of Man. The popes weren't asleep. Pope Leo XIII responded clearly and decisively in February of 1880 with his encyclical, Arcana, and I'm going to read from paragraph five of that encyclical. Quote The true origin of marriage, venerable brothers, is well known to all. Though revilers of the Christian faith refuse to acknowledge the never interrupted doctrine of the Church on the subject, have long striven to destroy the testimony of all nations of all times. They have nevertheless failed not only to quench the powerful light of truth, but even to lessen it. We record what is known to all and cannot be doubted by any. Note that. We record what is known to all and cannot be doubted by any, that God, on the sixth day of creation, having made man from the slime of the earth and having breathed into his faith the breast of life, gave him a companion, whom he miraculously took from the side of Adam when he was locked in sleep. God thus, in his most far-reaching foresight, decreed that this husband and wife should be the natural beginning of the human race, from whom it might be propagated and preserved by unfailing fruitfulness through all futurity of time. Close quote, Pope Leo XIII, the Vicar of Christ. That's worth repeating. The true origin of marriage, venerable brothers, is well known to all. We record what is known to all, it cannot be doubted by any that God, on the sixth day of creation, having made man from the slime of the earth, having breathed into his face the breath of life, gave him a companion, whom he miraculously took from the side of Adam when he was locked in sleep. God thus, in his most far-reaching foresight, decreed that this husband and wife should be the natural beginning of the human race, from whom it might be propagated and preserved by unfailing fruitfulness throughout all futurity of time. Period. Close the book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your inerrant word, we see that after Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil to call into question your very first words to them, the fall of man occurred, and all hell broke loose. And as we look around, it's easy to see that all hell is broken loose in our society, because we too have called into question your very first words to us. We repent. And we beg you to give us the grace to resist the wickedness and snares the ancient serpent, and to remain faithful to your holy word unto death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.